Hello, and welcome to Worldly, part of the Vox Media Podcast Network. I'm Zach Beecham, and I'm here, as always, with co-hosts Jennifer Williams and Alex Ward. Say hi, y'all. Hi, y'all. Hi, y'all. You don't literally have to say hi, what? y'all. I y'all know I'm from Texas. Say, I do uh, okay. have to say hi, I y'all. Follow, I follow what is put in front of me. Now, uh, if you've listened to any news this week, you've heard about President Trump's trip to Helsinki and his uh, now infamous press conference with Vladimir Putin. Reporters asked Trump if he thought that Russia influenced the 2016 U.S. election, and Trump refused to accuse either Russia or Putin. My people came to me, Dan Coates came to me and some others. They said they think it's Russia. Uh, I have uh, President Putin. Uh, He just said it's not Russia. I will say this. I don't see any reason why it would be. So people obviously flipped out as a result of this. And to understand just why it's such a big deal, you really need to understand how much information Trump had about Russia's election tampering going into this meeting in the press conference. And today what we're going to do is dig into that information. We're going to focus on the indictment that came out in the past week from the Mueller probe targeting 12 Russian intelligence operatives. We'll also talk about an alleged Russian agent named Maria Butina, who is basically like a character from the Americans. It's really a bizarre story. But first, let's start with the special counsel's indictments. Jen, what's going on there? So, look, we already knew about the hacks of the DNC, right? The Democratic National Committee of the Hillary Clinton campaign's emails, John Podesta's emails, right? We already knew that the Russians hacked into these email accounts and then strategically released them to kind of basically make Hillary Clinton look really bad and make the Democratic Party look bad. But these new indictments give us so much more information that we didn't know before. In particular, the names of 12 senior Russian military intelligence officials who were the ones who actually did the hacking, who actually directed this entire program. Um, We have the names, like their first, middle, and last names of these really high-up officials. We also have really, like, granular details about exactly what happened. And I'm talking, like, how they got in, um, what they did. So it, it seems like they actually had been in there watching in real time as people were, like, on their computers. So Democratic Committee staffers, they were watching them do things reading their emails. They had all this information. We know how they, like, tried to cover their tracks, including using, you know, Bitcoin, cryptocurrency, using all these, like, secret cutouts to try to hide their identities. So we have all this, like, really incredibly detailed information. One of the most impressive parts of this entire operation was the creation of something they called DC Leaks. This was meant to be a, the cover for the Russians here. So effectively, it is a, there was a Facebook group, there was a website, and this is where they put the stolen emails and then literally leaked them out slowly so it would just constantly be in the news all the time. And then eventually, actually, it was found out when the DNC came out along with the help of another company, said, by the way, we were hacked, our emails are out there, and the Russians did it. Then the Russians tried to counter their tracks. They went away from the DC leaks thing, pretended to be a hacker named... Guccifer or Guccifer 2.0, however you want to pronounce it. And Tech experts all pronounce it Guccifer, but I think that's annoying because it's spelled Guccifer. Yeah, Gucci Gucci is just way, Absolutely. way It's better. funnier. Yeah, yeah it, it, should be Gucci. it should be Guccifer. Guccifer, so we're sticking with the official worldly Guccifer. line is that it's Guccifer 2.0. Uh, and hereby decreed. Yeah, here, hereby. <laughs> done. Okay. okay, sorry, you should explain who he actually is. Well, so well, he. Yeah, in yeah. Quote, he in quotes. Uh, so Guccifer 2.0 was supposed to be a... Romanian hacker that was like, no, world, it is not the Russians. It is I, a single Romanian. 
Romanian hacker. And no, it was still the exact same people. It was the Russians <laughs> uh, pretending to be this hacker. Well, what's amazing to me about that is some journalists actually took this cover seriously, even right. though it was clear to begin with that it's like, really? Romanian? No tech expert, no serious tech expert thinks this, considering that some of the documents were actually edited in Russian for one thing. And there are a few other things. But right. like, I saw pieces where they were like, we were given this document by hacker Gucci for 2.0. And I was like, what? But no, that's Russia. You're you're getting documents from, right. from Russia. Mean, and to be fair, though, like they were good at this, right? Like they Who, the, had, the Russians. Yeah, the Russians were good at this in the sense that like, you know, they quickly like created a new identity of this new person. And all of a sudden it looks like, oh, this hacker. And in the moment you have all this information. We're in the middle of this massive, momentous presidential campaign. There's all this explosive stuff coming out about John Podesta's emails and this fight within the Democratic Party about Bernie versus Hillary. You have all this like damaging information. You have all these different sources popping up, DC leaks, WikiLeaks, Guccifer. And so I understand personally how like journalists would be like, ah, I don't know, here's some hacker that did this. The problem is that we now know in painfully excruciating detail that this was seriously all the Russians directed by Putin. There's no possible way that these 12 military intelligence officials did not get their marching orders from Putin. Well, actually, the New York Times just came out with a story late last night saying that the U.S. had intelligence from high levels of the Russian government, somebody who knows what Putin ordered and knows that he personally ordered these operations in the U.S. election, right? And Trump knew that. He was briefed in January about it. So Trump has been calling the intelligence consensus that Russia did this into question for quite some time now. And he did this even after knowing from a very, very well-placed and very secret source and knowing all of this hard evidence that was in the Mueller indictment, like IP addresses, emails. People have said there's no hard evidence in it. That's not true if you read it. Like, read this indictment. It's very clear that they have the goods in these Russian intelligence operatives. And we link to it on Vox.com. Um, our colleague Andrew Prokop has written a bunch of really good pieces explaining this. So if you want to read the indictment, and you definitely should, you can also just Google it and find it, but you should read it. It's fascinating. Well, yeah, I mean, so Putin denies not only in Helsinki, but even beforehand, just that the Russians had done this. But his effective argument is these are patriotic hackers that are doing this on their own because they love Russia. Right. He's like, maybe, okay, maybe if it even was Russians, maybe they were just uh, some patriots. Here's the deal. I'm, I'm guessing they probably were patriotic. They are Russian senior military officials, but doing it on their own is a bit of a stretch. Like, what? yeah, okay, Putin's pretty patriotic, too, I'm guessing. Doesn't mean he didn't direct this thing. Right. They did it possibly because they're patriotic Russians, but also because Putin told them to their do it. <laughs> because their boss told them to do it. If they don't, they will be executed. <laughs> exactly. So, they, so they, they did the deed, right? And we now know this in basically every intelligence document that's been publicly released in any public statement from intelligence officials. And we now know even behind-the-scenes stuff from what they've told Trump. And yet, Trump still believes Putin's word over his own intelligence officials. It's a striking contrast here. And he's leaving the the chief spy, Dan Coats, who has multiple times said the Russians were behind this. They are the perpetrators. Leaves him out to dry. So speaking of patriotic Russians and doing the deed, let's talk about Maria Butina, who is the subject of the other major Russia-related indictment that the FBI sent out this week. So she is this woman who developed a social reputation in Republican circles. She has this very striking red hair, which comes up a lot in the coverage for some reason. It feels kind of sexist for me to bring it up, but it does get talked about. Uh, okay, to be fair, I bring it up, so I just think her hair color is fabulous. That's all I'm saying. 
So she was a student. It's red like Mother Russia. She was a student uh, at American University, and she had these ties. Alex went to American University, in case you couldn't tell from that whoop. Um, And she had these ties to the FSB, which is the other major Russian intelligence service aside from the GRU, sort of the CIA equivalent. And the KGB successor is another way to put it. And she developed a lot of of really curious connections, right, Jen? Yeah, so— you got to picture this woman. Like, she's young. She's very attractive, activist. And she cultivated this relationship with a Republican political consultant who is nearly twice her age, who even did her homework for her at AU. Lucky. (laughs) I mean, I don't know if you did it well. She went to all these different kind of conferences in the Republican Party, made all these connections in high places. Um, She even offered another person sex in exchange for a position within a special interest organization. She talked her way into the national prayer breakfast. This is all according to the indictment. Right, right, right. So she, but there are photos, right? Like there are photos of her with senior Republican politicians and activists. And, you know, so she did kind of all of this, but the, the main focus of her activism and her activities were based around the NRA and around gun rights. At one point, she's at Freedom Fest, which is this libertarian convention conference thing. In Russia, I'm the founder and now I'm the board member of the Right to Bear Arms. Okay, in case you missed that, she said, and it's it's different to hear the audio versus reading it. So she said, I'm you know the founder and board member of the Right to Bear Arms, which... If you read it, she actually has it B-E-A-R, as in the Russian bear, oh, so which funny. is the funniest name for a Russian gun rights organization ever. Just saying, she's clever at least. But yeah. Yeah, I mean, it's it's you can imagine why she'd want to get close to the NRA and, and shack up with someone twice her age who allegedly a bunch of people in the media are saying that South Dakota GOP operative named Paul Erickson. But you can imagine why she'd want to get close to him and others because— being close to the NRA and getting to meet a bunch of people who come to the NRA gets you close to some high-level folks in the Republican Party. And if you are trying, allegedly, to have some sort of connections to make some headway into knowing the right people, the NRA is a good place to do it. Right. She also, through this Right to Bear Arms organization, she actually brought people from the NRA, Republican politicians, to Moscow to meet with other people. So she's literally not just making connections and getting information for herself, she's also connecting them with high-level people in the Russian government and making sure that they know each other. At one point, she said, oh, I also need some money to get to some of these organizations to help get more awareness of my organization. And the Republican operative she was allegedly sleeping with said, okay, here's some people you need to talk to in the U.S. So she's literally going around trying to figure out, like, who has the money? Who has the connections? Who can I get to? And in 2015, she even asked Trump a question at an event and was asking, like, I'd like to know about what you would do for U.S.-Russia relations. What I find interesting about this is the sophistication of the operation, right? Knowing that the NRA is not only extremely powerful, but also functionally an arm of the Republican Party at this point, uh, though it claims to be independent. Like, if you look at their output now, that's bullshit. Understanding that connection requires a pretty sophisticated dive into American politics. And so the fact that not only did she know this, but she was clearly funneling this back to her handler means that the Russians had a really strong point of contact inside the United States they could use to gather information. And I think his name is Alexander Torchin, right? Allegedly. Allegedly. (laughs) Right. Let's say allegedly six more times. Um, 
this guy, Alexander Torchin, is said to have been her mentor, her handler, the guy directing this. They had the actual emails back and forth to him talking about, you know, getting sign off from President Putin. And once we get his sign off, we can go forward. Like, this isn't just like some random person who decided to do this on her own. And this guy, Torchin, is currently under U.S. sanctions for meddling, allegedly, in the U.S. elections, right? So, It's all back to this same kind of Putin-directed, high-level Russian government project to completely infiltrate the U.S. elections. And just to go back to the NRA thing, right? So it's not just like getting into the NRA is like a way to make connections. It's also because like gun rights are a really divisive issue. Before even support for Trump and trying to get him elected, one of the main things that Putin and the Russians were trying to do was just sow divisions and basically create chaos. So they funded like fake Black Lives Matter organizations, fake pro-Trump protests, fake anti-Trump protests. So it's also part of that broader just kind of Putin plan to completely interfere with the U.S. elections. And we know all of this. It's all detailed. We have the evidence. Yeah, specifically, it's not just that like she knows this guy, right, and they're friends. It's like they were having conversations where she would say things like, quote, I'm ready for further orders. Like actual requests coming from Moscow. So the, that, kind, that kind of thing is what I mean when I say right. uh, she's like a character from the Americans. No, totally. Right? Right. Like, Rest that in peace that show. Stuff. So I, I want you to think about this conversation that we've been having. And then I want you to listen to this quote from Trump again. Putin, uh, he just said it's not Russia. I will say this. I don't see any reason why it would be. Trump was told a lot of this information before he left. And Honestly, there's probably even more that we don't know about that he does. Classified information often stays classified. And yet, you know, Trump goes out with Putin, one of the most watched events of his presidency, and he does not tell the truth. Right. So he says, you know, I don't see any reason why it would be Russia. Uh, By the way, he since this kind of huge uproar happened about him saying that and saying, I don't see why it would be Russia who did all this. He had this like series of press conferences. And one of them, he said, oh, Actually, I misspoke. I meant to say I don't see any reason why it wouldn't be Russia, which everyone immediately called bullshit on because if you listen to the entire rest of his press conference and his answers, he makes it abundantly, explicitly clear that he doesn't think that Russia was behind this and he refuses over and over and over again. And we have a piece up on Vox.com by my colleague Jen Kirby who literally lists like all the times he had the opportunity explicitly to say Putin did it. Russia did it. I blame them. And he refused to. Uh, it's ridiculous. And and he clearly, even in the walk back, he kind of equivocates. It's just a mess. It is a mess. It is the president lying. I think I can say lying. Lying to the country, lying to the world, and doing it brazenly and repeatedly. After the break... Hundreds of people are dead in Nicaragua amidst mass protests and violence from the authorities, and we want to understand why. If you're a fan of Worldly, I get the sense that you'll love Deep Dish, a podcast from the Chicago Council on Global Affairs. Deep Dish is a podcast that goes beyond the headlines on critical global issues like Worldly. It covers a mix of timely foreign policy topics and important stories. It has really cool guests like Korea analysts and White House economists talking about trade wars. Uh, Israeli security experts explaining to cyber terrorism. Like, these are really interesting people. So subscribe to Deep Dish on Global Affairs today, wherever you get your podcasts, Apple, Stitcher, SoundCloud, the whole thing. Deep Dish on Global Affairs. Check it out. You'll like it. Baseball is fine, but this is Worldly, a podcast about the world. 
And most of the world doesn't play baseball. They play and watch cricket. One in seven humans on Earth watched one game of cricket between India and Pakistan. That's insane. Don't know much about it? You should watch Vox's new Netflix show. It's called Explained, and every episode is a 15-minute deep dive into one subject. This week's episode will give you everything you need to know about cricket. It features Stephen Fry, who's not just a hilarious British actor, but also a huge cricket geek. It talks about how a complicated British game became one of the most popular sports on the planet and how the sport got to be so complicated in the first place. So go check it out on Netflix or go straight to netflix.com slash explained. Welcome back. For Elsewhere, we're going to travel to Nicaragua where we're looking at a really serious outbreak of violence. Uh, Alex, you've been following the situation pretty closely. Why don't, why don't you talk us through what this, what these events actually looked like? Sure. So the the leader of Nicaragua is a guy named Daniel Ortega. What you need to know is that he has been pretty repressive in recent years, but he recently did a move to change the country's pension system. And there were certain university students that uh, protested that move, and there was a crackdown on them. And that only ballooned into a bigger issue. There were more protesters, more violence cracked on. This cycle has grown to the point that now there are scenes where there's thousands of people marching. The Nicaraguan flag, the blue and white flag is being waved around. And you've got now young people dressed like guerrilla fighters with homemade mortars, shooting at police forces, shooting at the security forces, security forces shooting back. It's grown into this massive mess that has lasted uh, since about mid-April and has killed around 300 people. So... You talked about the student protest about pensions. Can you just talk through a little bit about what that means? I think in the U.S. we don't really have a sense of, like, pensions usually are for, like, older people who have retired from their jobs after working, like, 30 years at a factory and they get pensions. So I'm not totally clear why students would get pensions and why they would get mad about that. It's not that necessarily the students would get pensions. It's mostly just that the country had promised that if you are—I mean, Ortega came in as a left-leading leader— And part of his promise was, you work, you're part of the state, then you will get a nice sort of retirement, right? Then he was making changes to that over time, and we'll talk about it, Ortega's moved rightward. And so these changes to the pension system were basically that money that you're expecting to have as you get older, you're not going to have it anymore. Got it, got it. Okay, and, you know, students, I guess, tend to be the ones who start protests generally speaking around the world. Okay, that makes sense. Right, but this isn't just about the pensions, right? The pensions are a flashpoint for a much bigger issue, which Alex was just alluding to. And to to understand that, you need to go back to the 80s. Daniel Ortega, back then, was the leader of a group you may have heard of, the Sandinistas, who were the leftist group that the U.S. was arming against in the Iran-Contra scandal. Right. So we armed the Contras, who we said were fighting for freedom and capitalism. Right. The Contra Sandinistas. Right. right against Contra the Sandinistas. against Sandinistas. So Ortega is a, was a leader then during that civil war. Since then, Nicaragua has made a kind of shaky transition to democracy, and he has run repeatedly for office, sometimes winning, sometimes losing— but has been in office for for some time now, and interestingly, has undergone an ideological shift. Whereas he started at this hardcore Marxist guerrilla leader, he's become a kind of right wing, the turban Latin America's caudillo, a strongman, right. um, and has not been not in the sense that left wingers can't be authoritarian. Obviously, especially Marxist Leninist states can be, but that his base of support has shifted from the rural peasantry to churches, to business leaders, to the traditional right-leaning segments of society, and has been rewarding them at the expense of the people who 
the Sandinistas in the past claimed to stand for. So basically what you're saying is like the, the students are basically seeing this as a betrayal of like the socialist ideal that he was supposed to have fought for and stood for. And now he's like cutting government benefits and like giving up all this stuff and cozying up to like the establishment kind of more conservative side of things. And so that's what they're reacting to. That's what they're protesting and on, against. And on top of that, if you talk to uh, Nicaragua experts, I mean, th- in a way, thanks to Ortega, he's taught the population to rise up when they see injustices, to revolt when they see problems. <laughs> right, and he they, did it. Which, so. which he did, and now they are throwing it back at him. They are throwing what he taught them right back at him, and it's clearly not going well. And part of the reason he's made these deals with the church and these business organizations that he once railed against, and the United States to a certain point, by the way, uh, the U.S. was kind with Ortega until fairly recently— he did it because he was losing these elections and now into in order just to consolidate power. He wants to win. He wants to rule. So he's consolidated power in himself by just making these deals. Okay, but part of the the violence, right, and part of like why this has become this major crisis is also because of his reaction. Absolutely. And the government. So, you know, they had these protests and then the government cracked down, right? And that's kind of, can you talk about that a little bit and explain what's going on there? Well, sure. I mean, it's, it's just simply Ortega does not want these protests. It's a threat to his rule, right? So he's now anytime a student group pops up or even now, it's not just the students anymore. Tons of different organizations and and anti-Ortega people have joined in. So it's this much bigger movement. As, as Zach said, it's not about pensions anymore. But anytime they come out, police forces will crack down, hit them over the head, try to stop these protests from happening. And it's just, you know, violence begets violence. It's just only growing everywhere it shows well, up. And also more fundamentally, right, his ideology has shifted from having, you know, being really deeply this kind of Marxist stuff that it was to a a quasi-personalist thing. That is, it's really about him and his own strength and his own power and his own importance. It's not as repressive as North Korea. It hasn't had the time to do that, but it's similar. You hear this weird blend of leader worship and uh, quasi-Marxist ideology. So, like, instead of, like, saying, okay, you're right, I listen to you, people, like, I'm a governor of the people, right, and I will hear your, you know, and I hear your protests and I will respond accordingly, he's just like, no, I am, like, a dictator, screw you, I will literally, like, shut this shit down. And they've taken, uh, the government has recently, uh, they say they've taken the city of Manaya, which is, was sort of the, the, the epicenter of this revolt in mid-April, so... In a way, at least Ortega's government's claiming they're shutting this down slowly. But the thing is, there's good research on this, which we'll post in the show notes, about the way that Nicaraguans feel. And, and polls show there's really a deep commitment to democracy among the population. So it's not clear that this kind of movement can be repressed by this level of force. The government may need to escalate even more, which could create, well, a, an even scarier and deadlier situation. We've seen what happens when governments try to crush popular revolts using force in Syria, and, and it's, it's not pretty. And Heather Nauert, who's the spokesperson of, of the State Department, just the other day had a really forceful response and a message to Ortega. It said, we call on Ortega, I'm paraphrasing, we call on Ortega to, you know, to stop this violence. And she said, basically, the U.S. is watching, and we are paying attention, and we are watching what you do, and you can't get away with this. So once again, you know, the U.S. is watching this kind of fight in Nicaragua and, you know, not necessarily getting directly involved like back in the day, but very much paying attention to what is going on in this kind of democracy kind of uprising. It's a a scary situation, and it's one that is not getting the attention that it deserves in the international press. So we will keep track of this. I hope you will too. And if you want to learn more, uh, our sister podcast today explained, did an in-depth episode on 
the protests and the violence. And so I'd, I'd recommend that you go check that out if you can. And we'll link to it in the show notes. And on that note, I think we'll we'll say goodbye for the week. I'd like to thank our producer, Bird Pinkerton, uh, our other producer, Jillian Weinberger, our social media guru expert, Julie Bogan. Make sure to subscribe on Stitcher, SoundCloud, Apple Podcasts, whatever it is that you like to do. And vote for us on podcastawards.com. 